Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 380, Irish Revolution. Now, Philemon Neal was one of the winners from the English colonial state in Ireland. He came from an impeccable native Irish family with roots in Ulster. He was a descendant of the rebellious Earl of Tyrone, Hugh O'Neill, although Philemon's branch of the family had abandoned Tyrone in an attempt to hold on to their lands, which they had done. As the inheritor of extensive estates at a very young age, Philem was a royal ward throughout his young years, and every effort was made to bring him to the Protestant faith, and he did become a rather reluctant Protestant for a while. But in 1628, the partial concessions made under the graces allowed him to take an oath of loyalty to Charles and yet return to the religion of his ancestors, which he duly did. Still, he was from the start in full communion with the King of in Kingdom of England on his way to becoming anglicised at least to a large degree. He attended Lincoln's Inn for his education, for example. And when back in Ireland, he married well, and then he took part in all aspects of the colonial administration. He was a JP. He sat in the Irish Parliament. Yet he remained linked to the leading Gaelic families such as Randall MacDonald, the Earl of Antrim. He held estates of a stonking 4,500 acres, many of them acquired through the plantation policies with English settlers, so he shouldn't have been short of a bob or two. In a sense, then, Philemon O'Neill was very much typical of the objective of English policy in Ireland to make Ireland English. Another important thing to know about Philemon was that he had a good time, according to his station in life. He would not be the first young nobleman to live beyond his means, in a way one contemporary described as free and generous as could be desired. Almost certainly freer and more generous than he should have desired. In fact, as a result, he was indeed very short of bobs. In fact, by 1640 he had debts of £12,000, which is a lot of bob. So, he felt pretty exposed and very nervous. But then, he was considered to be the senior of his clan, and clan leaders could hardly be seen to be counting the penalties, could they now? Into this world came Thomas Wentworth as Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, as we have heard, and started throwing his weight around. Landowners like Philem O'Neill were seriously worried about the continuing failure of the crown to confirm title to their lands, and Strafford's threat of tyranny and the cynical use of their fears to coerce them infuriated them. If they lost any more of their lands, the gig would certainly be up with that debt thing. Philemon O'Neill was not untypical, though the concerns of Irish gentry and nobility varied according to circumstance. So, a nobleman called Rory O'Moore, for example, 
was burning with indignity at the loss of some of his ancestral lands in County Leash through the plantation policies there. Conor Maguire, the Baron of Enniskillen in Ulster, was up to his eyes in debt too, but his main concern was for the survival of Catholicism in the face of a Protestant parliament in London and Dublin. Meanwhile, the 1641 Irish Parliament tried to get the Graces fully confirmed at last, and under pressure in London, Charles began to feel that having friend in Ireland would be no bad thing. So, he ordered the Lord Chief Justices in Ireland to prepare the paperwork. Now, the administration in Dublin was dominated by Protestants, many of them knew English, and they were not keen on the Graces, not keen at all, no more than was the House of Lords back in England. They couldn't refuse to do the king's bidding, but feet were dragged, eyes were rolled, petty objections were raised in the essence of bureaucratic passive resistance, and progress was therefore slow. Philem O'Neill, Conor Maguire and Rory Moore were getting impatient, they were being ignored, they'd lost status, they'd lost power in the country in which they were lords. They should really do something about this. They should really do something about this. They contacted a relation, Owen Roe O'Neill, and asked him for his advice. And they began to do that thing that people do when official channels seem to offer nothing but delay, hopelessness and despair. They began, gentle listeners, to conspire, to plot, and even, outrageously, to scheme. As the situation unfolded in England, the conspirators increasingly saw a king being forced into obedience by the Parliament. Now, this was a bad thing as far as they were concerned. Parliament was increasingly dominated in England by the Puritans, similar to the New English in the Dublin Parliament, and no good could come to Catholic Ireland from a Puritan government in England. There were rumours abroad that a massive programme was to be unleashed to eradicate the Catholic faith from Ireland, and it's probable that Jesuits encouraged the rumours so as to make things more likely to get disturbances and rebellion. For the old English and Gaelic Irish, odd as it may seem, the king was their only hope. There was a surprisingly strong allegiance to the monarchy as a concept, and they valued their direct access to his ear, which was their right as lords. Their other big concern was their title to land, which had been threatened by Strafford and the refusal of the parliament to confirm those final graces. So, here's the plan that emerged then. On the one hand, their saviour was the king, so he needed to be protected and his hand strengthened against the Protestants that controlled both English and Irish parliaments and governments. On the other hand, the king hadn't exactly been covering himself in glory for the Irish either. So, how to square that circle? Well, here's how they planned to do it. They would take control of the government in Ireland, seize Dublin Castle and as many strong points in the homeland of Ulster in particular. Don't touch the Scots in the plantations, because we need only one enemy at a time, thank you very much, so let's take on just the English for now. Then, with that done, we can both destroy the power of the English Protestants in Ireland and force the King to confirm those blessed graces that we've been arguing about for decades, including confirming the title to our lands, which will restore our status and rightful role in the government and promise us the right to practice our religion in peace. So, as they honed and buffed the plan, events had helped them. Strafford's Irish army was supposed to have been disbanded in May, 
so there were fewer government soldiers about anyway, so good news. Though, while we're on that, the king had actually been conspiring with the Earl of Antrim behind the English Parliament's back to keep some Irish contingents on. For what purpose is not entirely clear, but of course, the English Parliament, as soon as they hear about it, suspected that it was a tool of tyranny to be used against them. But look, we can come back to that later. Either way, though, the point is there were lots of disbanded soldiery wandering around, heightening the sense of instability and crisis, and weakening the forces of state oppression. And the idea that the king might be retaining a secret Irish army to be used to reduce his English parliament to obedience, well, that rather encouraged Philemon O'Neill and company to believe that their rebellion might not be unwelcome by the king. Plus, there was a general disorganisation of the government at the time. Strafford had been replaced by the Earl of Leicester as Lord Lieutenant in Ireland, but he'd not been allowed to come over. So two rather ineffectual Lords Justice were in so-called control. So everything was coming together. The time was right for a rebellion. Things were a-cooking. All in, I, I, and I. The scene was set, the musket primed, the conspirators would gather tenants and patriots armed as well as they could and rise on October the 23rd to seize key strongpoints and arsenals in Ulster, use surprise to take Dublin Castle, paralyse the government and negotiate with the King and English Parliament from a position of overwhelming strength. Their concerns would be met, everyone would live happily ever after in peace, love and harmony. Now, it's October the 22nd, 1641. The story is that the rising was planned for the following day, the 22nd, and plans were being made on Wine and Tavern Street in Dublin. At 9pm that night, though, the Lord's Justice were raised from their evening slipper-fest by a desperate man called Owen O'Colony. Owen was that special breed of conspirator, a conspirator with second thoughts. And so breathlessly, he spilled the beans to the Lord's justice. The Irish have prepared men in all parts of the kingdom to destroy all the English inhabitants there. The following day, Philem O'Neill raised the revolt in Ulster and seized two forts, and within two days he was in control of much of central Ulster. The first part of the plan was a stunning runaway success. But the second part, well, the Lord's justice had listened to O'Connolly. They'd found and arrested Maguire, who was going to lead the revolt there. The castle had been sealed up as tight as a very tight thing. Failing to take Dublin Castle, then, was a fatal blow to the original intentions of the rebels. However overwhelmed the government was, and there would be a good deal of whelming going on, the government in Ireland was still in existence, it was still functional, and the chance for a bloodless coup had gone. So maybe what would unfold over the next few months might well have been unstoppable anyway. At this point, Philem O'Neill issued a proclamation saying that no harm was intended to anyone. The rebellion was only for the defence and liberty of ourselves and the Irish natives of this kingdom. He then issued an announcement that he held the King's commission for the actions the rebels had taken to arrest and seize the goods, estates and persons of all the English Protestants. Now this was a forgery, as you might well guess. But it convinced at least some to join the rebels. But probably more crucially, 
and more negatively, many in England would also believe that the king was indeed involved. On the timeless there's no smoke without fire principle, and in the stream of there's a papist plot going on panics that would then happen, Henrietta Maria's name duly appeared in the context of setting this deal up. Anyway, next Phelim appealed to all Catholics, whether Old English or Gaelic, to come together for the security of their faith and to put old differences aside and work together. And it was working. The rebellion began to spread. Rory O'Moore turned out to be probably the best politician amongst the rebels, and his exchange with the Old English of the Pale is very interesting. Now, these people had been natural allies of the king until now, and it was critical to win them over. It helped that all the noble rebel leaders were well connected by marriage with both native Irish and Old English families. It gave them a degree of trust, of shared interest, a key to open the door to dialogue with the powerful palesmen. There was an exchange at Julianstown, just south of Drogheda, where the rebels defeated a government force and killed 500 of them, so the rebellion was looking credible. And after Julianstown, members of the Old English from the Pale met O'More at Notcrofty. O'More skillfully built a message of shared interest, that, you are marked for destruction as well as we. And he added, we are of the same religion, the same nation. Our interests and our sufferings are the same. The bonds of friendship and alliance are mutual between us. The meeting persuaded many of the Irish palesmen that they would make common cause with the rebels. But not only did the rebellion spread, the rebellion was also spinning out of the control of its original leaders, and it was becoming a monster. Ordinary Irish seized this opportunity, especially in Ulster, to put right the wrongs of the past. It was a period of economic hard times anyway in Ireland, but it was the legacy of the humiliations and seizures of the plantations that added a massive dose of petrol to the flames and turned the rebellion into something quite different. Ulster was burning, and for those first few crucial months, they were out of control as the Irish sought vengeance and the Scottish settlers were as fully caught up almost immediately in the chaos. There were, without doubt, widespread killings and atrocities, all of Phelim O'Neill's English plantation colonists, for example, would die, despite his attempt to protect them. Famously, there were incidents such as the hundred colonists who were forced onto the bridge at Portadown. The bridge had been cut in the middle by the rebels so that all the people, men, women and children, fell into the river and were drowned, being clubbed to death if they managed to make the shore. In County Mayo, Somewhere between 30 and 65 English refugees who'd surrendered to their Irish captors and were being escorted to a fort were murdered instead. In all, around 4,000 settlers were probably killed. Estimates have been a moving feast for many years. Many more would have died from cold and hunger. Many were stripped of their cold, for example, and many were forced from their homes and livelihoods. So there's maybe an additional 12,000 but the real number is even harder to know. People were tortured to reveal the location of their valuables in many examples, so the grief inflicted as ever was far greater than the bare numbers reveal. 
the numbers killed may equate to about 10% of all the colonists across Ireland, but maybe as many as 20% in Ulster specifically. And then things of course were made worse by the reaction of the colonists. Many Catholics died as well in reprisals from them. The numbers of Protestant dead tends to come from later petitions and depositions to regain land later when everything had died down, and there were of course none of those for Catholics, so the numbers that died are unknowable. At the Battle of Nizinagavi though, for example, the colonists gained the upper hand and they took vicious advantage in revenge killings. The English authorities were equally ruthless. Charles Coote is reputed to have hanged Catholics without any recourse to any kind of legal process. William St. Ledger is reputed to have done the same in Munster, although his involvement there is disputed, I understand. However, killings certainly took place there. And as an example of how violence begats violence, Catholics duly took revenge on the relatively small number of English settlers actually in Munster. What's clear is that level heads were now as hard to find as hen's teeth, as a lot of tit for tat. So, as another example, a group of Protestants surrendered to a rebel force. They were promised quarter, but duly slaughtered anyway. And a few months later, Lord Barrymore took revenge on that by slaughtering 150 men, women and children at Balma Patrick. It's all very hideous, and I think that's enough detail. There are a couple of things. Firstly, how to characterise this Irish rising. Was it a nationalist uprising against foreign rule? Was it a reaction to the plantation policy? Was it an ethnic conflict fuelled by hatred of the English? Or maybe a religious revolt? The answer seems to be, as always probably, all of the above. To which we should add that the trigger was the concern of the nobility to restore their lost status. That was the thing that made it start. The original intention was not revolution, but a protest by the noble classes to make the existing system work better for the Gaelic and Old English nobility, rather than to overturn everything. It is worth re-emphasising that ethnicity or racism plays a strong part, because from the start, the English had taken a racist view of the Gaelic Irish. So, Ralph Verney of the English Parliament, for example, wrote in a letter that it was utterly impossible to infuse any humanity into those pagan Irish. It is important to emphasise this, not only because it makes, makes it unsurprising that there was a specific strand in the rebellion that sought out the English, but because this was part of a long tradition from the English to misunderstand and denigrate Irish culture as incomprehensible and therefore barbarous. The other big point to make is that the fury of the initial months of the rebellion are important, but its reporting and the fears raised amongst the English and Scots are almost more so. News of the rebellion fell on the Scottish and English like a bolt from the clear blue skies. No hint had communicated itself, although the signs were there. As early as February, the Spanish seemed to have had their fingers on the pulse, reporting to Henry Vane, at this instant, amongst the Irish friars, there is nothing as much spoken of as of a rebellion in Ireland. So the surprise accentuated the shock, but immediately keyed itself into the worst fears of both lowland Scots and English, their view of the Irish as an incomprehensible people in a violent society, their absolute terror of a universal papist plot that would exterminate the Protestant religion 
drown England and Scotland in blood and the work of the Antichrist. So news of the level of killing was massively exaggerated. Outside observers elsewhere in the Catholic world did the same thing and actually went even further than that. It wasn't just an English thing. The Lisbon Gazette used the exaggerated figures even of the English press and made them even bigger because it made the success even more glorious to Catholic eyes. A later Portuguese writer would compare the expulsion of the English from Ireland to the Spanish expulsion of the Muslim Moriscos, and actually their point was to lament that many Moriscos had actually survived that expulsion and concluded with the bloodthirsty reflection that it would be a mistake to expel the heretics from Ireland alive. So, as colonists fled Ireland and began to stream through the ports of Chester into England, the reporting grew more and more wild. 100,000 had been killed. No, 200,000 had been butchered. No, a quarter of a million men, women and babies had been tortured, maimed and killed. Everything the English feared seemed to be confirmed. The plot was for the Irish, in the words of one Thomas Smith, to cut the throats of all Protestants in Ireland. Simmons Jews, an MP, wrote that Many English and Protestants had been slain by the rebels in Ireland with so much cruelty as was ever heard of amongst Christians. The press had a field day. There's a strongly sensationalist streak in pamphlet writing that would make the Daily Mail blush. Pamphlets on last speeches made on the gallows, tales about the doings of robbers and vagabonds, these were essential reading anyway. Maybe people snuck them into church to try and get through sermons, who knows, like tucking a Mills and Boone inside your book of common prayer. So the Irish Rebellion was your perfect pamphlet fodder. There are some very famous woodcuts also by Wenceslas Holler, with hideous pictures of babies on the end of pitchforks and that sort of thing. As a quick couple of examples, in one, the Irish in Armagh were putting men to the sword, deflowering women and thrusting their spears through their little infants before their very eyes. In another, John Spaulding of Aberdeen wrote in his diary that the Irish used fire, a sword and all manner of cruelty against men, wife and bands of English, Scottish and Irish covenanters in their kingdom without compassion or pity. He then adds they had a whip round and his parish, though poor by his reckoning, raised four pounds for the Ulster settlers, a tidy sum. The rhetoric was often crazily extreme, and a lot of it was simply impossible to substantiate. Some of it was actually demonstrably made up, and to give Parliament their due, where invention was clear, they did try to throw water on the fire, so two enterprising Cambridge University undergrads saw their chance to earn a few quid on the side by making up stories that would fund their extracurricular studies. They were discovered and arrested making up pamphlets that they sold to publishers with titles like Bloody News from Ireland, the 17th century version of a pot boiler. People lapped it up and people believed it. They were fed by their fears to believe it and the very real presence of those who had indeed been violently uprooted, who brought real and exaggerated stories back to their parishes and families in England and Scotland. 
I did see a slightly irritating series on telly about the art of the British Isles, which had a section with an artist lamenting that Wenceslas Holler should purposefully whip up hatred. Well, Holler was guilty of not going over to Ireland to check his facts, no doubt, but it's almost certain that he, like the vast majority of English and Scots, didn't do it on purpose. They simply believed what they were being told. In war, the truth dies. Enough. You get the idea. There is a violent revolution in Ireland which gets out of control. The violence causes absolute panic in Britain, which raised the heat of all aspects of debate and would remain a constant factor in decision-making. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. So, we left the English Parliament on the 1st of November when 17 councillors had brought the first report of the rebellion to the horrified MPs. You might remember, hopefully you'll remember, that the bandsaw of the reform had met in the Lords not pliant wood anymore, but hard, uncooperative metal. The attempt by the Commons to remove bishops from the Lords had fallen at the hands of the Lords. The crucial proposal to give Parliament a right of veto over the King's ministers, that had also been blocked in the Lords. There was division between the Houses, along the path of reform, and it was beginning to look like crisis time in Parliament. Now, the news from Ireland may have helped bring people back together in a shared commitment. There is nothing, after all, like a mutual threat to bring people together. And within two days, by the 3rd of November 1641, a committee of both houses had indeed agreed that an army should be raised of 6,000 foot and 2,000 horse. Now look, this was naughty of Parliament, naughty naughty. Raising armies was not Parliament's job. That was the role of the Commander-in-Chief. Now repeat after me. Parliament is a legislative and tax-approving institution which may provide advice. And that's it, that's your chips. Raising armies is nowhere in their job description. Except Parliament decided to do it anyway, so there. But that was the easy bit, because that left a huge question hanging above the houses, the mountains, and the steel-grey glowering skies in words of burning flame. Who would command this army? Hands up, then. Who would like that figure to be the one that had commanded the army since the ancestor of the royal house, Cherditch, landed with his three ships of warriors on the shores of Hampshire, namely the monarch? The king, Charles Stuart, first king of that name, Hands up anyone who thought it would be a good idea to put a sharpened scythe composed of 8,000 trained warriors into the hands of the man who had only a few months ago been supporting an army plot to seize control of the tower and put an end to parliamentary independence. There were few hands raised in Parliament for this idea. For the time being, then, it was Cromwell, actually, who proposed to Parliament that the Earl of Essex be appointed as commander of the army just until the king returned from Scotland. It's another significant move of the Commons towards exercising executive power, but they rationalised it by saying, look, it's only temporary, just until the king comes back into town. So Cromwell's resolution actually resolved very little at all. 
And anyway, once more, the Lords refused to play. They would not approve the Commons' promotion of Essex to be commander of the militia. That, they said, that was the role of the King. The Royal Party in the House of Lords was growing still ever stronger. So, despite constant interruptions of news into Parliament of further horrors from Ireland, it was now the remonstrance on which the progress of reform depended. The great document that Pym had written, listing all the evils that the King had visited upon the nation and what the answers to that were, what further reform was needed. Pym had two principal objectives with this grand remonstrance. It was to recreate the unity of Parliament that had been lost between Commons and Lords, and it would relaunch the demand for further reform of the Church and affirm the right of the Commons in specifically to approve the King's appointment of ministers. It was vital. The remonstrance must succeed, or the King and Edward Nicholas would have succeeded in building a royal party strong enough to defeat the reformers in the Commons in whatever they did from now on. If that happened, not only would the cause of reform had reached its end, but the Junto would be vulnerable to revenge and destruction at the King's hand. So, here's the thing. The document Pym masterminded wasn't just a normal proposal or petition from Parliament to King. It was not simply an appeal to the monarch to redress his subjects' grievances, pretty please. This was right from the beginning designed to be an appeal directly to the people. Pym fully intended and made it indeed clear for debate that the remonstrance must be published to the public in a way that had never been done before without the King's approval. It smacked of the kind of populism Parliament had always kept firmly away from. It was the King's right to order proclamations to be printed and published. It wasn't Parliament's right at all. The remonstrance was a whopping document, 204 clauses. So comprehensive was it that the Victorians would later label it the Grand Remonstrance. It had three parts to it. Firstly, a long and very long list of grievances, things the King had done wrong all the way back to 1627. Sorry, hang on, did I say King had done wrong? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Wash my mouth out with soap and water. I meant, of course, the King's evil councillors had done wrong. Of course I did. This, it has to be said, was a fiction that was wearing dangerously thin now. Secondly, there was a rabble-rousing account of what great strides Parliament had made since 1640. Hurrah! Champions of the people in their hour of need. Thirdly, the remonstrance laid out a series of demands, or loyal requests, should I say, rather, for what the King must do next, or should do next, pretty please. Pym knew getting the remonstrance approved would be a fight contested tooth and contested nail by the growing King's party in the Commons. Nicholas had done his job well for the King in building a party. Scotland may be lost to the King for the moment, but in England the battle was nowhere near over. So, Pym planned his day well. What day should the debate happen? Well, the 5th of November, of course. The day when Parliament had been saved back in 1605, the biggest day of the year for secular celebrations. Then, William Strode had already passed a proposal that the day be started in the Temple Church near Lincoln's Inn with a sermon. 
And so there they duly assembled, crammed into the church. But he had an ulterior motive, because you won't be surprised to learn that the sermon was a fiery political denunciation of tyranny, taking the harsh biblical king Rehoboam as its subject. Now duly dressed and marinated, the MPs were next greeted with a series of depositions laid before them in the House, exposing the details and villainies of the failed royal action against Argyll and Hamilton in Scotland. Just in case you've forgotten who we're dealing with here, an aid memoir to the King's untrustworthiness. So all of this is great preparation, maybe, but the remonstrance hit troubled waters almost immediately. Over the next three weeks, concession after concession was given up to moderate MPs to keep the remonstrance on the path. Clauses about papist errors in the Book of Common Prayer were removed. Demand after demand for church reform were removed or watered down until all that was left about the church was a pious request for a grand synod of the Reformed Church, Scottish, English and Dutch, to consider reform of the church further. For the moment, religious change must be sacrificed, else the remonstrance would founder on the rock of the moderates' loyalty to the Church of England. But the political and the constitutional reforms, they survived and they remained. The demand that only ministers be appointed that could command the confidence of Parliament and that ministers be removed from the House of Lords completely. The tone of the remonstrance was riddled with professions of loyalty, but make no mistake, these were demands. This was the people ordering the king around. They expected and indeed demanded a yes. Nicholas and Charles were, of course, in correspondence about progress of the remonstrance in debate. So, as Charles set off from Scotland, he ordered Nicholas that my servants were by all means possible to see that this remonstrance may be stopped. The day dawned for the final debate in the Commons on the 22nd of November and the King's party were ready. The debate started around noon. Speaker after speaker came and went. And as the record shows, if the number of speakers would define yea or nay, then the result would be nay. The remonstrance would fail. Edward Hyde, John Culpepper, Edward Daring all spoke powerfully against the remonstrance. What was it for? What was the need for it? So many of the objections and grievances listed there had been met already, agreed, in negotiation with the king in good faith. It was time to draw a line now, get back to the business of peaceful government. Time passed, the debate carried on. The candles were lit as evening drew in. The debate raged. Why was this remonstrance to be produced by the Commons alone? Why were they bypassing the Lords? But most of all, the speakers detested the populism of the remonstrance. There's a quote by John Culpepper which rather delightfully encapsulates your traditional view of the role of Parliament and the attitude towards the involvement of the people before those cursed reformers had started outrageously to suggest that the people should have a view on how they were managed. This is a remonstrance to the people. Remonstrances ought to be to the king for redress. This may exasperate. This is unseasonable. This way increases the divisions of the kingdom. 
We are not sent here to please the people. Hmm, interesting. Also note, not just the bit about not being here to please the people, but the worry that this may exasperate, you know, exasperate the king. Well, the reformers might well have cried that, hello, that ship has sailed some time ago. Did you not see it? Heading out to sea, merrily did it drop below the kirk, below the hill, below the lighthouse top. Look where that kind of deference got us in the 1620s. Precisely mm, nowhere. As John Pym put it, the time had come to speak plain English, lest posterity say that England was lost, and no man durst speak truth. Edward Daring may be expressed best at the astonishment from the moderates and the royalists of how far things had come. This new world they all seemed to be moving towards inexorably, unless they put a stop to it now. I did not dream we would remonstrate downwards, tell stories to the people, and talk of the king as a third person. Finally, around two in the morning, in the smallest of hours, the debate was drawing to a close. After fourteen hours of continuous debate, many had left the house in exhaustion. Tempers of those that remained were short. It was time to vote. Those for the remonstrance were ordered to leave St. Stephen's Chapel and gather in St. Stephen's Court outside, because by tradition, those voting for change left the chapel, while those for the status quo stayed in their seats inside. So, the tellers then did their work, and everyone reassembled to take their seats in the dark candlelight, while the tellers came up to the bar to give their answers. Whatever the result was going to be, everyone could see it was very close. The first teller announced his results. 148 of the MPs had rejected the Grand Remonstrance. The teller from outside in the court of St. Stephen announced his result. 159. The Grand Remonstrance had been passed by just 11 votes. Tempers were running high, and the business was even now not yet done. Up stood John Hamden and proposed that the House immediately organise printing of the remonstrance. Now, this was again unheard of. Only the King and his government could order such a thing. Tempers frayed when the vote was taken, and the result came in 124 to 101. Approving publication, pandemonium, erupted. Furious members demanded their objections be noted by name in the official record. The noise was intense, the heckling, and swords were drawn. Only agreement to adjourn till the next day prevented actual violence on the floor of the House. The junto had won, but it was a pyrrhic victory. The unity of the House lay in ruins. Key proposals, like command of the militia, remained blocked by the Lords. Nicholas and the king may have failed to stop the remonstrance, but their party had well and truly declared itself, and that it could be pushed no further. There is a codicil to the passing of the Grand Remonstrance, one of the great tales of the English civil wars, and they are a requirement of any history of the period, so be warned. If you read a history that does not have this vignette, it simply doesn't qualify. PhD, professorship, or whatever, still fail. So, as the members were wearily shuffling out of the house, stifling yawns, no doubt, 
feeling angry, feeling frayed. Lucius Carey, the Viscount Falkland, was waiting, anxious for news, to find out if his master's interests had been saved. He saw the member for Cambridge, and he asked him whether there had been a debate. Cromwell, thought as he, replied, and leant forward to whisper in Falkland's ear that, if the remonstrance had been rejected, he would have sold all he had the next morning and never seen England more, and he knew many men of the same resolution. So, there we go. The source of the rumour that Cromwell was planning to emigrate to New England. The story, as so many, is in Hyde's history of the rebellion, given that by the time he wrote it, he was Clarendon and had been Charles's right-hand man, that's Charles II's right-hand man. Hyde adds, So near was the kingdom to its deliverance. The anecdote is interesting for multiple reasons. Firstly, that Falkland should have felt so comfortable talking to Cromwell, clearly a well-recognised figure on many sides of the debate, so much so that Oliver felt perfectly happy in return to whisper in the peer's ears. Farmer's wart may be gently brushing noble cheek as his warm breath disappeared down the pink noble lug hole. Just a thought. Also, that so soon after the events of all the English civil wars and the death of Cromwell and all the rest of it, the myth of Cromwell had already come to dominate memories of the civil wars. Sorry about the wart comment, by the way. Charles and Henrietta Maria were on their way home from Scotland. It hadn't turned out there as Charles had hoped, he had to admit. He'd not found himself an ally, and it had been a little humiliating and even embarrassing with the incident and all that, but he felt at least he could now put the Scots in the out-tray. He would come to learn that nobody puts the Scots in the out-tray, but for the moment he might well have been feeling a little chipper. He could at least concentrate on the task ahead and things were looking up. The grand remonstrance may well have passed, but he'd passed by a whisker and Charles had a party now. There was a newfound confidence and a newfound determination to have as little to do as possible with the junto. There'll be no more Mr Nice Guy. There is a lovely letter which gives an insight into the state of mind of Charles and the Queen. As he returned to London, any king would absolutely always have been in communication with their chamberlain, controller of his royal household, to organise their entry, accommodation and all that sort of thing. But it just so happens that Charles's chamberlain was the Earl of Essex, and Essex was a fully paid-up member of said junto. Charles couldn't really be asked to give Essex the time of day, let alone his schedule. So he gave the job to his wife. Henrietta Maria didn't want to give Essex so much as the rough end of a pineapple either, so she wrote to Nicholas instead. The king commanded me to tell this to my lord of Essex, but you may do it, for these lordships are too great princes now to receive any direction from me. It is rather delightful, isn't it? These reformers are too grand in all their arrogance to listen to a mere queen. Resentment, anger, and a certain level of slightly childish peeve. And anyway, Henrietta Maria and Charles had something planned. Charles had never been one for public flesh-pressing. 
never great at that Tudor skill of putting on a show for the people, the common touch. Charles liked the formal, controlled, private world of the court, not the bawdy and, frankly, well, you know, smelly people. But now he knew that regaining the streets of London was critical. For too long the reformers had been able to call out the crowd on demand. But now the Conservatives had regained control of the London Common Council and the office of mayor with Richard Gurney in place. If he had the alderman in his pocket, he could control the trained bands, keep the crowds away, stifle their support for Parliament and use the trained bands to intimidate the MPs even. He also felt that just as his supporters had begun to emerge from under the frost of the reformers' dominance in the Commons, so he suspected this could also be the case in London. So, he was going to wow the masses of London with the Stuart version of bread and circuses. There was going to be a party. OK, everyone, so, in summary, the contest is heating up. The Irish rebellion has raised the stakes for everyone and focused attention more than ever on control of the military, the militia, the trained bands. Despite the passing of the Grand Remonstrance, the momentum of the Junto's reform programme is faltering, struggling against increasing resistance in the Commons and the Lords. How far can Charles capitalise on that? Well, we'll find out next week. Meanwhile, may I ask you all to consider the benefits of signing up for membership of the History of England? You get to listen to the History of England advert-free, get access to over 100 hours of secret shedcasts from me and new shedcasts every month. If you're interested, hop along to thehistoryofengland.co.uk and choose the Become a Member option when you're there. Also then, thank you so much for coming to hear me play, everyone. I'm eternally grateful and for taking part. Until next time then, good luck and have a great week. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 